like the uh, the street. What's it? What's the FIFA street called, Roy? Volta football. He quite likes the street football, sort of three aside stuff in a cage. Right. <laughs> Sounds like WWE. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's what that's what you may well see over my shoulder is those. Two. Maybe that's how we should end the Premier League season: three on three in a cage, <laughs> yeah. with no fans at a neutral venue. You can't maintain social distancing in a cage. Let's take it to Australia. That's a great idea. Yeah, but the thing is, they're not actually talking about any of this stuff. Nonsense. They're all red. They're all red. It's all red herrings. And it, this constant amazing. It, it all comes back to this thing of it. It's utterly impossible for us to play nine games. Let's focus all our energy on playing the next 38. People saying uh, that they want to expand the Premier League next and season. Yes, two extra rounds of matches in. That'll make things easier. So we can't play these nine games, but we can carry a 22 or 23 team Premier League next season. And we'll be ready to start that on the 1st of September. This season is like coronavirus. If we can just get rid yeah, of exactly, it, yeah, yeah. everything will be all right again. Why the mentality isn't, when we get the opportunity to play football safely, we will play the final nine games yeah. of this season. And then, once we're able to achieve that, we'll worry about whether we're able to move forward. Why is there, why are there there's this whole thing of like, if we can just draw a line under 2019-2020, mm. the whole, the, glue, the albatross will disappear and... Football well, will be able to continue as it always has done. Somebody said to me the other day, just wait until the like the void the null and the it's not all partisan, but a lot of it is. A lot of the for some reason Arsenal fans are adamant the season should be voided. It's really odd. Whereas like United and City are split just as they've they've still got stuff to play for. I think Arsenal fans are just like void it. We don't, we didn't like this season anyway. Yeah, but we'd the, rather we'd rather it, it never happens. So exactly. But that, yeah. Just make sure we don't have to have Unai Emery as manager again. The um <laughs> But if you void the if you void the season, then um, I'm sorry, you've got to have him back. back. (laughs) That's how things were at the beginning of last season. Everybody reverses the transfers that happened after it, and all the managerial changes. You have to go back to July the first, 2019. Erling Haaland's never scored a goal. No, he's um, rubbish. He's rubbish. No, the um, there is Steve's right. There is this thing where people think that just finishing this season will will solve the problem, but. It's, yeah, it's not all tribal, although a lot of it is. People won't admit to that, so it becomes this... It's like a whole argument in bad faith. And there's just so much nonsense around it, and stuff like the Australian thing don't help, because that, that's not going to happen. And yet it's now like, oh, well, see the Premier League's moving to Australia. And you're like, no, it's not. That's not a story. But they should really just say, right, we'll, we'll, just, we'll just finish the season when we can, and that would, that would almost would be easier if they just came out and said, look, yeah. everything else, will be, we'll have contingency plans in place for what, whenever we can start. But the other thing is that all this, loads of it's not like, this isn't about getting coronavirus at corners. That's not how viruses work. It isn't possible. Chinch would have been continuously ill if you could catch a disease from corners. <laughs> yeah, but I, I didn't stand near anybody. I was putting in the penetrating, devilishly accurate crosses. I wasn't in the group scene in the penalty. No. Well, <laughs> in I, I was scene. safe for the, yeah, the, 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 the melee the ensemble cast the, the maelstrom of the uh, of the who would want to be in there with those sweaty lumps anyway i'll just whiz that ball in goal run back to the halfway line firm handshake i can't get coronavirus <laughs> everyone else can would you have worn a mask whilst playing chinch if it was decreed that you must um because i'm so ugly i should really wear a balaclava I, i'd be <laughs> recommending there's many many footballers that should wear balaclavas not just masks because their mouth actually is probably one of their Good points. It's the rest of their face that are the, are the main problem. 
This is Set Piece Menu, the podcast where four friends in lockdown talk football over food. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are Rory Smith, Creativity 20, Stephen Wyeth, Determination 20, and Andy Hinchcliffe, Defensive Positioning 3. The food is chinch provided by your wife for your granddaughter and will be put on Twitter at some point uh, to be determined. What has been cooked up in the Hinchcliffe household? Uh, it's not been microwaved, as ever with Nikki. It is freshly prepared macaroni che- cheese. I'm not a big fan myself, um, but I- I'm confused. Is it a- is it an adult meal or is it is macaroni cheese for children? No, macaroni cheese is now an is adult it- meal. You'd have that as a meal of it's an. It's been evening. repurposed. It has been repurposed, particularly oh. in America and uh, in the Caribbean, where it is a staple of the cuisine. Okay, has it been has it been solid with adding things to it, or is it just oh, macaroni yeah. cheese? What, what do you mean? Not oh, had yeah. macaroni cheese and lobster. No, funnily what? enough. Oh yeah, macaroni oh. cheese and lobster. Where in Boston? Oh come on! Where essentially you have everything plus lobster. You're making lobster. yourself look really bad saying this. It was one of the cheapest that. cheapest things on the menu. I tell you, everything what else. Was, what was more expensive, expensive than that then? Everything else with lobster. And Rory has also baked himself. Uh, a, a cupcake, or you wanted to call it a bun? It's a bun, really. That's what we always refer to them as. But I guess, I guess modern people would call them a cupcake. This one was orange-flavoured. And why did you flavors. bake it? Orange, lemon, chocolate. All three flavours. <laughs> I baked why... it because baking... So lockdown's really different for everybody. We're locked down like change with a two-year-old. And so the main point of lockdown... For us, Stephen's obviously got his homeschooling to think about. We can't homeschool uh, because two-year-olds don't learn anything. But um, certainly nothing learned, I can't homeschool, by the way. I have established that. How are the lessons going? Badly. What have they le- It looks an awful lot like they're just playing FIFA. <laughs> <laughs> that's how badly it's going. Yeah, that's, that's the kind of level we've descended to. Steve, I think you should have shifted slightly to the left so we couldn't see the boys playing FIFA. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> we've, we've, already, we've already exhausted all of Disney Plus and Amazon Prime, so it's on to the PlayStation now. Uh, given that FIFA is so much on television, are we actually contravening some sort of rights deal by having that on in the background? Should we publish any of this video to a social media output? I'm not sure that anything impressive enough is going to happen in a game of FIFA between a nine-year-old and a six-year-old to contravene any sort of regulations. Strictly speaking, Steve, gamer is now a valid career path. So this could count as some sort of kind of workplace experience for Rory, couldn't it? (laughs) I will take any sort of massaging of my control of my own children that I can get, Rory. So thank you very much. Do you think you'll be nicer to... Because you're obviously a fearsome character at at, at parent-teacher evenings. Always berating the staff at... At the, at, the, at the boys' school for not being not being up to much. Do you think you'll be kinder now that you've seen the the day to day challenges of, of teaching unruly children? I respected teachers before the lockdown. I do so even more now. But I will be taking them to task on school reports a little bit more going forward, because a pleasure to teach, a joy to have in class, um, friends with everybody he shares a classroom with. None of those things are true. I know that now. <laughs> so stop feeding me the lie. Which one was that about? Oh, both. It applies both. to both. Yeah. 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 Uh, that, is, that is the biggest hashtag humble brag I've ever heard of. So uh, the food is for Chinch being cooked for small children and for Rory being cooked by small children. No, well, hang on, hang on. So I bake because it's quite a, good ex- quite a good activity to do with Ed. 
but Ed is not a helpful sous chef or whatever the equivalent for baking is. Does all he do, like you put the flour in the mixing bowl and he immediately sticks his hand in. Then you put like the butter or the sugar in and then he sticks his hand in. And then you put the flavourings in, the zest, and he sticks his hand in. And then he won't let you do the whisking because he thinks the whisking is fun. So you whisk for like 10 minutes. And then as soon as you put them in the oven, he goes, all done, and demands that one is brought out. <laughs> He's a nightmare. Uh, so we've learnt about the food and the football has been uh, somewhat previewed, but still I'm going to ask the question. Chinch, do you know what we're talking about today? Yes, I, I feel I feel we're going to be talking about some kind of football game. Some kind of game? Some kind Technology of game. Maybe? Technology involved. Yes, very specific. Well done. We are talking about computer games. A lot of significant yeah. things happen in football in the early 90s. Enough to write a book about, I would suggest to Rory. But uh, in 1992 and then in 1993, there were two revolutionary releases to change the way that people my age grew up and now how a huge amount of the generations that followed engage with the game. Championship manager, now football manager, and FIFA. So in a time of no football, we're going to talk about how much virtual football there might still be in everybody's lives. So that is to come today on Set Piece Menu. You can get in touch with the podcast, setpiecemenu at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook. By the way, on both social media platforms, you can find all the tools that you will need to have your own SPM style draft. That's at Set Piece Menu or facebook.com forward slash Set Piece Menu. Have a go at our draft. Maybe like Rory, you'll actually surprise yourself at how much fun it is or was. Um, we actually put a poll on Twitter to see who you thought had the best team when we undertook the draft in last week's episode. Stephen has the results. I've not got them to hand, uh, Hugh. I think uh, it's this best. One, we just, one just, just brush over it. There's no need to go into too much detail about it. Let's it was, hear the results. It was a bit of social media fun that, you know, people who engage with us on Twitter will have enjoyed, I'm sure. But, you know. Did you come last, why, Steve? Why dwell? Why dwell overly on, did on you, what people thought of our respective lineups? Did your creaking ancient midfield get overrun? I think what we've learnt is that not all polls can be entirely accurate and not everybody's assessment of what makes a quality Champions League ready side is, is necessary. He came last, accurate. Rory. It's, it's came simply put, he came fourth. He came last and we shouldn't be learning that about polls now about two and a half years, three and a half years too late. Um, so In Chinch... reverse order. All right, so he is going to tell us, all right. Uh, my team, very, very greatly underappreciated by the masses, got just 9% of the votes incredibly beaten even by Hughes' team, which was entirely unbalanced, <laughs> with 14% of the vote. Chinch got 24% of the vote. So just to prove that really you can learn nothing from such things, the winner is Rory <laughs> with 53% of the vote. 53%? An outright majority. That's a <laughs> landslide. That is an absolute landslide. Does this mean I'm king? Although I think, I, think my, I, st I stick with my assessment that Chinch's team would win an actual football match, but I think mine, would, mine maybe look be looked best on paper. The other thing we've learned from this is that subtle messages don't cut through with the SPM audience because I, I created the teams, images of each team, to help people make their decision and very deliberately put Hugh's team in pink, Rory's in luminous yellow, Chinch is in a lurid orange, and mine in a nice, vibrant, striking red, thinking that, you know, that would draw the eye. And mine games. The, votes. the colour of war. <laughs> and it simply didn't, didn't work. Steve, going back, would you not go for Neymar again? Because I, I do feel that's where you made a, a, a horrendous error. No, I'm happy with my team, Chinch. Your I'm, team that came fourth I'm, out of four. I'm sticking. I'm sticking with it. Relegated. Let the proof be in the pudding. Relegated to another podcast. 
I did uh, did say at the beginning when I introduced Steve, 20 for determination, and that has already been proved to be the case. Um, meanwhile, this email comes from Ewan Haig. Dear fine gentlemen of Set Piece Menu, a few weeks ago, a friend called me and said he'd heard a really good podcast by four Englishmen discussing MLS. After some searching around, I discovered the very podcast, SPM episode 168, and enjoyed it immensely. I scanned the list of previous SPMs on Spotify and decided to listen to SPM 166 about likable footballers. Also good. And then the world in, went into coronavirus lockdown. Here in Chicago, when schools were closed on March the 17th, we all began working from home. Discovering a goldmine of podcasts of 170 episodes was just what I needed to get through the crisis. As each episode contained references to previous episodes, I decided to go back and listen to the unfulfilled potential 11. That was 159, which was a bit harsh on Lee Sharp, I thought, as he played around 200 games for Manchester United, got severely injured soon after signing for Leeds, and won eight caps for England. Wait, eight caps? That's uh... one more than anyone. Anyway, that unfulfilled potential episode led me back to the previous SPM on the same topic, which was number 156. As I listened to your words of wisdom, I noted some recurring curiosities. Why the constant references to Bruce Springsteen's back catalogue, circa 1975 to 85? Why is Chinch performing dramatic readings of Lee Child novels in imaginative character voices? Why are listeners <laughs> called buffaloes? Does Chinch really have a soccer story for every single episode? <laughs> I decided that there was only one thing to do to understand the full gravitas of SPM. I had to go back to the start. Back to December 2016, when Pep Guardiola was a new arrival in England. Arsene Wenger was still at Arsenal, alongside his star player and top scorer Alexis Sanchez, and Stoke were comfortably mid-table in the Premier League. Different times indeed. So, I am writing to you now from episode one. I won't know if you have read my email until I've listened to approximately 100 hours of previous shows and got back to the present. Well, it'll be the future by the time I catch up. What will football be like when I'm finally realigned with SPM's weekly podcasts? Will Liverpool have won the 2019-20 Premier League title? Will any football even have been played? What will be on the menu at Hughes House? Or will everyone be still self-isolating, eating alone yet together? Keep up the good work and stay well. Your pod is much appreciated in these difficult times. Yours from Ewan Haig in Chicago. I have a Lee Sharp story if anyone wants to hear it. Why not? The eight-cap wonder that is Lee Sharp. Well, you'll, you'll have, but you'll have to stop me if I've told you this before, that I used to play football with Lee Sharp. Do we know this? I mean, well, do, we, do we podcast know this? I think Hugh and Steve definitely know this it, as not, friends. I'm not sure what's the most unusual thing, playing football or playing football with Lee Sharp, because I don't think it can be described as playing football when you go out onto a pitch with your boots on. It's, it's kind of spasms, isn't it? <laughs> Is it, I'll ha- I'll, I'll Collection have, of spasms. I'll, I'll have you know, Chinch, that one of the ways that I've passed lockdown is by challenging myself to a keepy-uppy challenge. Mm. It's a very specific one. It has to be performed with a semi-inflated size three football. Otherwise, it doesn't count. And also, but, it's got to be alternate feet. Not alternate feet. It's just it's with everything. So heads, shoulders, knees, toes. The, um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I just coined a phrase there. Um, that's catchy, isn't it? Yeah. Sort of song. I noticed there you said yeah. head... Knees short. You didn't mention feet. I do use my feet, yeah, my thighs. Oh, okay. my... You try and keep it away from, because they're the main, main obstacle when you play. We've just encountered the Venn diagram of Rory's love for football and his care for a two-year-old child. <laughs> <laughs> it's, no, it's just Ed, Ed's out in the garden pottering, and after about 10 minutes watching a two-year-old potter, it, you get very bored, as you know. So I do something else, and what I do is do keepy-uppies. And my personal best so far with a size three under-inflated football is 152, which I think is not bad. Other people can do more keepy-uppies, but the crucial thing here is the ball is underinflated and very small, so it's much harder. It's the same, basically, what I'm saying is, you know when Diego Maradona did the keepy-uppies at the San Paolo with the golf ball? I'm better than that. Better than so, that. Better <laughs> than that. Just so we're clear. 
the um, the Lee Sharp, Lee Sharp, you must, I must have told you this, that Lee Sharp ran the pub where I grew up. It may well be that listeners are screaming at their um, podcast producing devices saying, we've heard this before, but none of us have any kind of memory when it comes to Rory or indeed Chinch's stories. Mm. Anyway, why you, so Why have you saved this like 175 episodes? Because I've got a terrible, I, I don't really remember any of my life, Steve, you know that. I don't have any memories. I was born without a memory. Who are you? Um, the, no, so Lee Sharp bought, I think he bought the pub when I was about 18, where we drank and, or didn't drink. I went in for a black currant and lemonade. Anyway, my mate Millsy uh, suggested that he get a football team together. So we did. Uh, and we all went training with Lee Sharp up at what are now the rugby league pitches, I think, uh, near Shadwell in Leeds. And I was like, this is amazing. I'm playing football with Lee Sharp. And Lee Sharp was, this was Abby Titmus phase, Lee Sharp. He was absolutely dreadful. But I, all bombast put aside, at that stage in my life, I was better at football than Lee Sharp. Yeah, but he had an Abby Titmus. Yeah, but you, you know, it's always, it's always going to balance things out, Rory. She'd obviously distracted him. His mind was elsewhere. But, mm. but he was, I mean, I think he wouldn't have got in the team. How, He'd how only can, retired a couple can, of years he over, before. Was he overweight or was he just... He was a little bit sort of chubby. playing to his right foot or... I don't know. Whether, maybe he just wouldn't be bothered anymore, but... He'd only retired from Bradford a couple of years beforehand. And he was a little, he was a little bit chubby, but he was in decent nick. Like, he, wouldn't, he wasn't like... Yeah, it's strange to think that his heart really wasn't in it, you know, training out on rugby pitches with a load of nuggets from the pub. You thought he'd really be geared up to show how good he was. <laughs> I would have thought he'd like to, to kind of guide us. Imagine all that wisdom in Lee Sharp's head. Maybe he's a listener. Lee, if you're listening, get in touch. <laughs> Well, Richard Parfit is a listener who has got back in touch, this time to talk about the potential Newcastle takeover, as discussed on SPM 175. Hi all. Firstly, let me say I'm really enjoying listening to the pod during the lockdown. Without real football, it's kept my mind pleasingly occupied to think of my team, Chelsea, winning the Premier League every year while the other big English teams narrowly finish above FC Copenhagen in your new European Super League. Listening to the Newcastle-Saudi discussion was particularly interesting. I work in the charitable sector and we often deal with the potentially questionable sources of an individual's wealth and whether it is better to use the money or to avoid the reputational difficulties of taking it. Tobacco, oil and state wealth all come into this. Think of the Royal Shakespeare Company dropping its link with BP, for example. Often the argument that one hears, and it's not an illegitimate point, says Richard, is that by taking wealth from these people, one is redirecting it towards a greater cultural and community good. Surely it's better that the wealth of oil billionaires should pay for a theatre that brings culture, joy and education to thousands than for a few fancy yachts, they might argue. I think the football fans often have the same attitude. Surely it's better, they would say, that a billionaire should pump their money into a community institution like a football club, giving opportunities for talented footballers to achieve amazing things and entertain the fans. I haven't reached my own conclusion on that yet, but I think the view that it's okay to take money from bad people to do good things prevails in a range of charities and cultural institutions beyond football, and it's worth giving it consideration. One final point. If we think of football clubs as cultural charities rather than businesses, their behaviour makes a lot more sense in general. Both typically rely on a small number of very wealthy benefactors to fund their activities, their key performers and their associated community work. Few are truly profitable in their own right and all have an emotional connection with their customers that goes far beyond anything a supermarket, for example, could ever expect. Keep up the great work. Cheers from uh, Richard Parfit, who has this PS. Manager most likely to still put on a full suit and tie every day when working from home, Carlo Ancelotti. Thank you, Richard. I mean, I think we can all have our views on. It's a really, it's a, it's a good point, and I think the, the comparison with a cultural institution is 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 a valid one. Um, and I can see the argument. I don't necessarily agree with it that redirecting the money is is a better use 
of their those funds than than might otherwise be the case because you are kind of leveraging that 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 asset that community institution to somebody else's ends but i think i think we can probably all agree that it's one thing taking money from dictators or you know states or tobacco producers but it it would be quite another taking it from someone who who subsidizes the theater i mean that is that is that's beyond the pale the, you know, the idea that the owner of a football club might might also go to the theater would be enough to make me stop supporting noted uh, theatre critic and not in the conventional sense Rory Smith <laughs> our Buffalo slot this week goes to John Wood the Buffalo not the other one uh, from California and John's email is entitled the five stages of grief dear SPM by the time this email is read out the pandemic may be over and all may have been resolved hooray on the off chance that it has not been resolved I wanted to share my own illogical and irrational concerns regarding the impact of COVID-19 on football During group chat conversations with fellow football fans, some Liverpool, some Everton, and unfortunately, a Manchester United fan, I think I have passed through all five stages of grief. This is in relation to my team Liverpool and their long-awaited Premier League title. The first stage, denial. As the Premier League looked like it was edging closer to take steps to mitigate the coronavirus outbreak, friends of rival clubs were suggesting the season should be voided and we start again next season. I straight up refused to even contemplate this. I would think, nah, it'll be fine. Games will be played behind closed doors in a worst case scenario. Or Liverpool have wrapped this up before the international break. The very idea of the league being shut down was a no-go for me. On to stage two anger. Once the season had stopped on that fateful Friday morning, I moved on to anger. Ex-pros and other less informative football podcasts were saying if the season cannot be completed, it should be voided. And then we start again as we were. Friends were casually stating that Liverpool were not worthy of the title if the season wasn't finished. I would start to get really worked up. How could they even suggest this? This is absurd. I've been waiting for this league title literally my entire life. I was born just after the last title win. It cannot be taken away. They cannot do this to bargaining. Well, what if we leave the league off for a bit, then start to play behind closed doors till the end of the season? It's not ideal, but at least it gets sorted. Or what about Leeds United? Liverpool aren't the only team who have waited years for something to have it unfairly snatched away. Think about them. Or what about relegation in European places? They need to be decided as well. Let's just finish the season. Next, depression. I don't even know if I will want to watch football again if this happens. Maybe I could start watching Kabaddi. That looks fun. (laughs) And finally, to acceptance. It's done. Everyone is going to start listening to Tony Adams for a change and just end the league. I may as well just accept it now and be at peace with it. Let's see what the future holds. So as it stands, I've had to accept that Liverpool won't be given the title. I know that it isn't set in stone, but at least if I accept it now before it's confirmed, I will be ready for the banter and flood of memes on the internet. And at least if Liverpool are able to win the title, it will add some drama to a long dead title race. Anyway, I hope you and your families are all safe and well. Keep up the good work from John. At the risk of taking... Uh, a relatively light-hearted email to make it far too serious. I had a conversation uh, with my sister and my brother's widow um, the other day where we talked about the Kubler-Ross model, which is the five stages of grief, and how it actually applies much better to the, um, to the coronavirus crisis and like your reaction to it than it does to actual grief, because actual grief is quite chaotic and quite messy. But this, the, the way that we've all responded, whether it's to do with football or, or anything else, to the coronavirus crisis is the perfect model of... Of the, of the five stages of grief as you do go through all of those processes. And I think that's, a, that's what a lot of football fans have gone through for, on all sides, not just Liverpool fans, not just people who, who are going to lose something from the season being cancelled, but if it is cancelled, um, which I'm pretty sure they're going to talk themselves into doing. Um, but it is, it, it fits perfectly. I had that same, yeah, so I, well, I say I had that same thought. Booney had that thought the other day and I've stolen it and appropriated it as my own. So it's, it's very wise. 
I would invite John to get out of my head. <laughs> any, any further wisdom to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. So then to our discussion today, for those of us who haven't had the skill, perseverance, mental fortitude and sweet left peg to play seven times for England, we've long attempted to achieve just a smidgen of the same feeling by recreating the highs and lows of footballing success and emotion virtually. Some are so invested in championship manager, now football manager, they apply for real managerial jobs in the real world, while those who are equally invested in FIFA in its most recent forms do actually have real jobs playing FIFA in the real world. Both games have become not only a huge part of our recreational lives, they also represent for many an entry point to the sport or some of its players. Case in point, I knew about Zlatan Ibrahimovic long before he had even left Malmo in real life as he led my York City team to nine consecutive Premier League titles. His strike partner was another seemingly predetermined success in the game, but turned out not to be in real life. His name was Kaba Samura. You had to buy him from Gothenburg. He was a Sierra Leone international. While in FIFA, what used to be just an opportunity to see if you could do more stepovers than Cristiano Ronaldo, it has now become both a huge game of fantasy team building and a fully fledged esport, both online and in tournaments hosted around the world. So today we are going to talk about capitalized acronyms that are not VAR. It's F-I-F-A and F-M. That was an impressive build-up, Hugh. Did you rehearse that? I rehearsed it, but it was generally uh, off the top of my head. But this is a suggestion that you made, Stephen, so perhaps you could lead us into the forest of conversation. Well, it was a suggestion I made on the back of a conversation that we had collectively a long time ago. Remember that series we did over one summer where we talked about the men who have influenced football and we each uh, suggested one person who we thought had had perhaps an understated influence on the way that football had developed after their involvement. And that we talked about, and I think it was was Rory who mentioned it initially, how significant the impact of FIFA in particular, but football computer games in general, had been on growing the sport of soccer. That many people now find a way into the game via video games, and that many, many more people are engaged in, in football online and in video games and they are actively playing the game in real life i think i read somewhere that 200 million games of fifa take place on an average sunday the most popular day of the week to play fifa well those are the kind of participation numbers that real world football could only dream of and it shows you how significant the development over and and the other thing that's interesting about FIFA of course is that the life of FIFA the computer game is very similar in terms of the life of the Premier League it goes back 27 years since the first edition of, of FIFA hit our computer consoles so the growth of the game and the way that football has exploded in terms of its global popularity is very much in sync with the development of the computerized football game as well there's kind of two there's two aspects aren't there there's there's one which is which Hugh touched on in his wonderful intro which is kind of the way that computer games have changed the way we consume football which is which is really important i guess for i, I suspect we'd probably not change be the first generation who that really applied to that that computer games were were kind of easily accessible that you could obtain them you could partake in them relatively easily i remember when i was about 13 i guess 13 or 14 i i started playing one of those play-by-mail management simulation things remember oh god i have a vague recollection of that that's that's terribly geeky why did you do that because i was 
a boring and lonely child, obviously. Um, the... probably, probably best not to drill down on that because I think we're all, yeah. well, not change going to have kind of similar confessions. But so the, for, pe- for younger listeners, basically what you did is you, you joined this league and every week they would send you a, a patch of papers and you had to write down your, your team selection. I can't remember whether they were based on real players or on... It must, have, it must have been real players. You'd play as a club and you'd be in, placed in a lead with lots of other people or 20 other people who were, 19 other people who were playing by post. And you'd have like two games that week. So you'd send in your, um, you'd write down your team selection and your substitutions uh, for certain minutes. And then you would send it all back. And a week later, the results would come back and you'd be like, oh, you lost this game to Nottingham Forest 2-1 and you won this game 3-0 or whatever. And you went through it all again. And I did that for a little while. I, I was not the sort of child who kind of committed to things long term. I didn't, I wasn't that geeky. I like did things for a bit and then, and then thought, no, this is boring. Um, what did you move on after- to? What did you move on well, to? Well, this is it. So pretty soon afterwards, Going championship manager. Champ- with Lee Sharp. I was, well, that, no, that was, that was later on, Chinch. But the, pretty soon afterwards, I, I think either a friend of mine, in fact, I remember it was, it was a friend of mine, Johnny Green, who, um, who introduced me to... Um, Johnny Dream sounds like I've just made up a name, doesn't it? <laughs> doesn't it? My, my made-up friend, Johnny Dream. I'll tell you a story about Johnny Dream off the uh, off air. It's too graphic. To Does it involve Lee Sharp and Abby Titmus? No, it doesn't. It doesn't. It's um, it, it's a very you know, it's it's an off air story. Um, and yeah, he introduced me to Championship Manager, and I remember sitting at his house like all night one night. He was he was being Lazio, and trying to win Serie A or something. This would be yeah, ninety six, ninety seven, something like that. And, and from that moment on, it was like, well, I don't need to do this stupid posting thing. I just get, get this and play it forever. And like, from that point on till uni, really, just obviously I went to university in the days before you had laptops. It was, um, it, I played Championship Manager endlessly as well as Pro Evo and, and not FIFA, just FIFA I found a bit basic at that stage that later overtook. And it did, it kind of, there was obviously this massive untapped market out there for people who wanted to kind of consume football in that way in a much more kind of, comprehensive way than you could in those days because there were games at the weekend you could read the papers there was things like club call which was a scam but it was quite an entertaining scam there were you know there was the radio and what have you we didn't have sky it wasn't this there certainly wasn't social media so there wasn't this 24 7 culture of being absorbed absorbed by football so if you wanted to be in football all of the time or to if you were that obsessed with it those computer games were the way you consumed it and that was how I learned a lot of players it was how I learned a lot of tea we're not a lot of teams kind of in their modern kind of context it's how I learned about Leeds it's it was the only way really of having that all encompassing that enveloping um, exposure to football and then the second part of the conversation is how these computer games have influenced football which I think is actually really important that their real world effect yes we'll come back to the second uh, in a moment and, and and just kind of stay on the first because Steve was was it like that for you in that I chime in a lot with what Rory's saying about some of the information that sits in the deep recesses of my brain about players, clubs in terms of the wider um, kind of footballing world, you'd know what was going on in, in your own country perhaps, but learning about foreign clubs, about foreign players, some of whom just about might still be playing in the, like Zlatan Ibrahimovic, for example, in their late thirties, but they, they still retain to me, at least partly, some sort of basis in having learnt about them for the first time in, in championship manager, now, now football manager. And I imagine it, the, the people going through that now would have, have the same thing to say about FIFA. I've never, and I still am not, a massive gamer. 
we've got a PlayStation in the house. The kids use it an awful lot more than I do. But my, when I was sort of 10, 11 years old, a, a new lad moved in next door to me and he was very much into computer games. He had like Commodore 64 and one of the early Ataris. We'd play all sorts of stuff. But I remember Daily Thompson. There was an Olympic game with Daily Thompson's oh, name. Yeah, that way you like got through keyboards once a week through utter fury. <laughs> but yes, yeah, certainly he would play football manager quite avidly. And that was certainly the first exposure to football computer games that I had that was, was playing them against him at his house. So whilst playing computer games is often seen as being quite something you do in isolation, as Rory was just saying, actually, it was the kind of thing that exposed you to bonds of friendship over playing these things and, and learning these things together. And, and, you know, as far as football computer games were concerned, you know, new teams that you'd never heard of before because they were there at the available, you know, the, the, the click of a, a controller. You could jump from English football to Spanish or Italian and learn about teams that you had little or no exposure of, let alone the players that played for those teams. So you were immediately broadening your, your horizons. And, and like I say, whilst I'd imagine Chinch is even less of a gamer than I am, Chinch not wanting to speak for you, but even as a, someone who only dipped into it occasionally it broadened what you understood about the game and perhaps it gave you a sense that you had a greater knowledge and even a greater ability at football than than, than was the reality uh, here is a story from a listener about how playing fifa can affect you and indeed um help as an, an entry point uh, to the game although not necessarily successfully it was sent in a while ago and safely stored until now it comes from karen damija uh, was prompted by the episode about how we might come to support the teams we do which is from a while ago but it works for now good day andy and rory amongst others your original australian arsenal fan emailing in again i've been reminded of one of my good friend's processes of also ending up supporting arsenal he started by supporting spurs as he liked their white kit or something, while playing a rudimentary version of FIFA in the late 90s. But like a lot of Australians, he has a large extended family in the UK. So off he went as a 10-year-old with his family to visit his posh London relatives, who, as anyone would, asked the young boy which club he supported. To everyone's shock and horror, he said Tottenham because of FIFA. They then explained to him that his extended family the Hill Woods have led the Arsenal Football Club since the late 1920s and they can't have a family member supporting their North London rivals. Yes, his relatives happen to include the former chairperson of Arsenal Football Club. His former lover Tottenham is now never talked about, apart from when his father wants to embarrass him. That's from Karen Damager. So you've got to be careful who you end up supporting because of, I don't know, flights of fancy in games like FIFA and Football Manager. Even for those of us who haven't chosen the team we support because of Football Manager or FIFA or whatever, or the other kind of the other the other games, you definitely develop a bond for teams because you played as them or because they were good. So I, I once had a long running championship manager game with Celta Vigo, and I'm now quite fond of Celta Vigo. Like I, I mean, I won't, I don't like cry when they lose, but it's been like, oh yeah, Celta are doing well, that's good. And I think that's true for a lot of people that it it, it opened. It gets really sneered at now by the kind of because because all of this information is so easily acquired by everybody now that that the idea that you might have gleaned some knowledge from from a computer game is taken almost as an insult i remember in the stage of my life where i spent a lot of time arguing with people on twitter about their claims to have been watching roberto Firmino when he was a 13 year old in the brazilian 18th tier and suggesting that they might perhaps be bullshitting that, that they kind of took it as like some grave insult that they might have taken knowledge from 
from computer games. This wasn't the product of their own intensive scouting network that they did for no apparent reason. That, <laughs> but back then, if you weren't, if you, obviously if you were working in football, it'd be different. But back then it was really, really hard to find out anything about football elsewhere because it wasn't on TV. You couldn't Google it. You couldn't get the highlights on YouTube. None of that stuff existed. So literally your only way of kind of hearing about players would be through FIFA and Football Manager and all the others. That, that There wasn't an, an alternative. So you did tend to build up bonds with with teams that you managed or teams that you took charge of or you'd quite often, I'd, if it was a team that, that always beat me, you'd start disliking them in real life. But I'm glad they've lost. And I think that because that was the only way that any of us were really exposed to football from elsewhere. And it may not have been true on continental Europe where I think they might have had more football broadcasts more frequently from different countries. England's always been really insular. Um, but for the rest of us here, it was, that was really the only way of accessing that stuff. There was, there was, there was no other route apart from, you know, buying world soccer once a month. Our interest in our collective interest in football means that probably in terms of, football computer games and real life football it was an organic intertwined process in terms of how we we further developed our, our interest and our knowledge of the game but I can flip it on its head because I, I know from experience when I was at university me and my housemate played the the ice hockey equivalent of FIFA on the Mega Drive all the time and that's where my interest in ice hockey came from I support the New York Rangers because I played as the New York Rangers on the NHL game and he supported the Chicago, uh, supported the Chicago Blackhawks for the same reason and when we went to New York together as third years at university, we went to see the Rangers against the Blackhawks at Madison Square Gardens. And that all came from, that was, that was all driven by developing an interest in the game and its players through playing it on the Mega Drive. So there will no doubt be numerous people in other parts of the world. And I think it's particularly true in North America, where I think there was, in, in reading up about this before we recorded, about one third of of Americans who have an interest in football trace that interest back to having played FIFA. So I can certainly, I've certainly experienced it from the other side of learning and cultivating a fascination with a different sport from having played it on a computer. You can tell how seriously the players take it because every year when FIFA particularly release their ratings, mm. players basically contest them and they do it with a slight sort of nudge and a wink and a bit of a kind of smiley face emoji. But they're, if they think they've been under under club they are genuinely upset and it's because partly because i guess they they take fifa's assessment seriously and they you know they they kind of want to see how they stack up to their peers but partly it's because they, they they'll know that that's how a lot of people consume football and the crucial thing i think there is that those games had this massive effect on people because before they existed it wasn't considered really feasible or possible or certainly normal to try and put like a numerical value on a player's ability. Whereas now that is taken, that's taken for granted that, that certain players are of certain levels of quality and that can be expressed through a, rate, a rating out of 20 or a rating out of 100 as it, as it is on FIFA or Pro Evo. That, 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 that is how we think about football and footballers and that's really important to the players. But it's also part of our common, kind of it's our common language around football is, oh, you know, as you, the, the intro you did, like 20 for speed, 20 for creativity, whatever. Like people instinctively understand the idea. They might not get the rating itself. They might be like, why are you doing it out of 20? Because they might not have played football manager. But they get the idea of, giving, of assigning a numerical value to a player's ability. And before computer games, I'm not sure that existed. 
Well, they, it, the only way it existed was in, in the player ratings that the local newspapers gave post-match to, oh, which is a obviously out, a, a, a mark, mark out of 10, 10 which for is, a performance, yes, not which a mark is also, out of 100 for a player. Yes, and that's also reflected on Football Manager, isn't it? That you get, obviously, yeah. during a game, you get a mark out of 10. Um, well, didn't, uh, didn't Rio Ferdinand once threaten, jokingly but seriously, but jokingly, to burn FIFA down, to burn EA Sports down because they only gave him 65 out of 100 for passing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that, I think there's there's lo- there's loads. Like I think Aubameyang objected at one point, and there's been a few where they've where the players have kind of gone to EA effectively and said we're not happy with this. And now they make a thing, don't they? Like EA will go out and like hand out to elite yeah. clubs. They'll hand out the, the ratings. Shield, isn't yeah. it? The shield yeah. with their picture and their ratings on. Yeah, yeah. And, the, and the, it's a long-standing argument, obviously, between the, the, the acolytes of Messi and, and Ronaldo is who's got the higher ranking. And, and I think two of the last three years have actually been equal first. So FIFA, like the rest of us, like to avoid an argument between those two. But we do have a footballer who clearly we can talk to about whether they feel particularly strongly about the ratings that they get. This is Andrew George Hinchcliffe, who, of course, is a former footballer who paid no attention to any ratings that were uh, delivered on his behalf because, frankly, he didn't know that were happening. Is that, is that true, Chinch? All this discussion so far has completely baffled you, I'd imagine. No, it hasn't baffled me. It's just I've, I've never played either game. I had, my kids were born, what, 94, 96. So when, when would you start playing? When, when, would it, when would you understand what you were doing? Would you have to be seven or eight? So by the time my kids maybe started playing it, they, there's two years between them. So they played the game between themselves. I, I was <clears throat> asked a few times to play and just... I've got no interest, never had any interest in computer games at all. Of course, I didn't grow up with any. Channel 4 was like mind-blowing. A fourth TV channel blew my mind as a child. So you understand, I didn't have any of this. And it's really interesting. I do agree, though, is that kind of how it's kind of cross-pollinated, how it's gone from FIFA into the game and how the game has become, the professional game has become more like FIFA, where they do assess the, the money ball side of things, how they look at players. Brentford, for example, but virtually every club now do what FIFA does, assess players, work out their value compared to other players, and maybe actually thinks about who they sign because of these numbers. And the, and the scouting systems put in place, uh, and Rory's mentioned this before, by the likes of Nike and Adidas, when they're looking for their next young player to try and get uh, on their rosters, uh, it's the similar sort of thing that, that the scouting systems that both um, put in place are markedly only not only improved on what they used to be, but also uh, sometimes the envy of quite a lot of uh, football clubs. So we asked on Twitter if those of us, because clearly if we have the current version of Football Manager, we can't get Andy Hinchcliffe. He is uh, merely a blot on the very, very distant landscape. So uh, we asked on Twitter if anybody had an old version of Championship Manager, as it would have been called then, to tell us a little bit more about the Andy Hinchcliffe in the virtual world and just to see how it perhaps reflected on Andy Hinchcliffe's own thoughts about Andy in the real world. Um, and so we got an email from Chris Wilkerson. Salutations, SPMers. Let me start by offering my sincerest hope that you are all well and relatively sane at this time. I promised on Twitter that I'd send you some Championship Manager Chinch content. Championship Manager 0102, to be precise. Unsurprisingly, or maybe worryingly, as an avid SPM listener, holdback catalogue now completed, I had one major signing to make as I returned back to the safe embrace of 2001 football management games. Andrew George Hinchcliffe. Originally, he signed for my Celtic team and then at West Ham to replace a 38-year-old Nigel Winterburn. Hinchcliffe left Peter Shreve's Sheffield Wednesday after a painful defeat in the First Division playoff semi-finals to, well, isn't this ironic, boyhood club Manchester City. Mixed emotions, 
he had not made the squad in either game. You will see from his stats, however, that Hinchcliffe had thrived that year. 47 appearances, four goals, seven assists, one man of the match award and an average rating of 7.17. I should interject at this point, that was in the second tier of English football. Interestingly, Chris goes on, before fiction took over, he had played only nine times the season before. No comment. These impressive stats were not enough for him to break into the West Ham starting 11 initially as the season began. The England international still seven caps. Joining at the same time as Turkey's Hakan Unsal, uh, the two men replacing Rufus Brevet, Scott Minto and the aforementioned Winterburn. It appeared that Hinchcliffe was destined to be a backup player or used in a squad rotation system as his contract stipulated. But Unsal faltered and Hinchcliffe seized his chance. A League Cup third round tie with Chelsea, so I'm giving his chance to impress. And he has not looked back since, ever present from that day forward. No injuries, no dip in form. And that is where our Hinchcliffe story resides at this moment. A thriving partnership with Joe Cole down the left, enough to force calls for an England return, at least in this household. Attached to a number of images, he has sent in a number of images. A lot of them are screenshots from his game. Uh, Take a look at injuries, because that is included in his list of screenshots. Only two took place during the playing of his game, and an an explained damaged foot, the worst of them. Uh, And he also says, worth a quick stats quiz for the rest of the team. All my gratitude as ever for the wonderful work. Chris Wilkerson, usually in Wollongong, Australia, now in lockdown, in Haddenham in Cambridgeshire. So, Chinch, congratulations. You're still playing at the age of 34 in 2002. 7.17. 7.17, an average rating out of 10. I'll take that. I'll take that. Certainly no 102. That's the season I retired. Exactly. This is in in the virtual world, you had a longer career. Now, Chris has sent in pictures of your stats from 2003. We also know stats from the game in 1993 when you were just 24 years old. So this is, going... Can I just say, this is really unfair, because actually my 96, 97 is probably my peak. So you've gone for the two bookends when then the real meat of the sandwich has been completely ignored. Let's get the figures when I was at my prime. The chin when Glenn Hod- Yes, when Glenn Hoddle was <laughs> admiring my Adonis naked, not completely naked, had a towel on. That's, those are the figures that we really need. Are you, are you, are you objecting to the fact that we're using stats from puppy fat chinch era <laughs> <Yes>. and <laughs> knackered chinch era? yes. Basically, yes, from the, I was just been born and I was been taken to the knacker's yard. That is really <laughs> unfair. But anyway, carry on. The stats we can actually compare because they feature in both games. Passing in 1993, 12. In 2003, still 12. Tackling in 1993, 14. In 2003, 12. Heading in both years, 10. Flair as a 24-year-old, 7. Flair? But what does a, flair even mean? As a 34-year-old, 9. So, no, 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 I, I, that, I didn't have any flair. There was nothing I... Well, what did I do that had flair? I couldn't even do a step over. Seriously, what would be construed as flair? Rory, tell me. A little, what, what, a, what? A, a little jinking run occasionally, know, maybe. Can't yeah. do that. Didn't have a trick. And kicking a ball is not flair, is it? You did, you did it with corners. a flourish, though, didn't you? That's a flourish, not a fl- that's not flair, oh, is that's it? That's true. Well, given that it's seven or nine out of 20, I think that's their way of saying you had no flair. Creativity yep. started at 12, went down to nine. Stamina Rubbish. started at 10, went up to 14, which is preposterous. What? Influence doubled from seven to 14 over the 10 years and pace halved from 16 to eight over those 10 years. What? Now, more importantly, the later version has a little more detail and these perhaps pertain more to the conversations that we regularly have on this podcast. Injury proneness, out of 20, 14. That's never out of 20. That must be out of 13. 
That's ludicrous. Free kicks, 16. Corners, 17. Penalties, 17. Throw-ins, 15. Which I'm throw-ins? You were very good what? at throw-ins. Yeah, but what, 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 if you throw it to your own player, what does that even mean? How it means you, that you very rarely you... just dropped the ball on your foot. <laughs> <laughs> you <laughs> that would have been 11 out of 20. Dirtiness, 6. Dirtiness. They didn't know about the Paul Pesky Salido. I know. I was a, to be. I wasn't a nasty player. I, I wasn't. I, I wasn't truly. Uh, left foot twenty. Right foot five. And finally, <laughs> uh, this, That's this generous. Line, that well, is generous. That is really generous. That was after Glenn Hoddle had worked on you on that training mm. session. Do, do you get five <laughs> if you can stand up on it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, finally, a note, having uh, asked, Chris Wilkerson asked his physio at West Ham to deliver a report on Andy Hinchcliffe. Physio John Green has indicated in his report that he has no concerns over Andy Hinchcliffe's fitness. Johnny Green? Again, madness. Different Johnny Green. Johnny Green? Different Johnny Green. How weird. Johnny Green from a physio in the game of 2001-2002 <laughs> Championship Manager. Uh, thank you to Chris Wilkerson and Stephen Dando for the stats. You are very, very kind. So, Chinch, having had the rule run over you from two separate years in Championship Manager, you have gone through the same process that current players go through when... Mm -hmm it is revealed what everybody else seems to think of them and have a rating out of 20 or for FIFA out of 100 put on them. So how does it make you feel? It's, it's something that I never, ever took any interest in. But, but really, hand on heart, anything, apart from my left foot, anything over 10, I would be relatively pleased with. Because my career was checkered. It was. That's just how it was. But my left foot, I, that's the only... If they gave me 17, I'd say hold on a minute, I, I, that's the one thing I disagree with. But even then I wouldn't disagree with it because I just think, well, to me it doesn't make any difference. To, to a lot of current players, clearly uh, it does. But to me, I wouldn't, even, I wouldn't even look at these stats because you know how bad you are and the players around you and your coach knows how bad you are. So they constantly tell me, they don't have to say you're 17 out of 20. It's just you're rubbish and you're not playing. So I must had, be below 10. Had you played either of these two games, the more likely FIFA, and say you'd been given... Oh, let's, let's be generous, shall we? The, the year of your birth, 69 out of 100. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not I'd being take, generous. I'd, I'd take that. That's very, that, for me, that's generous. I, that's no, it's, that's bad, Chinch. It's, it's terrible. It's terrible. 70 out of 100 is, for me, I, I personally feel that's not bad. I think for me, so, knowing me as I do, and I do know myself pretty well, that, I'd take that. I would have said that you would, at your peak, would have been a 78 out of 100 player. At my peak, yeah, but my peak, peak was half a season. No, the <laughs> entire season at most, really. Your peak, yeah, half a leg. Your peak yes. was basically the the end of John Major and the first term of Tony Blair. How long was that? Ten years of, of magnificent leadership on no, and off the pitch. No, 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 no. So you're saying if they bought FIFA no. out twice a season rather than just once a season, there might yes. have been addition an addition in which Chinch was a sort of 78, 79, 80. I yeah. do get I do get a lot of people saying to me that they they did well primarily for corners, but they, they did buy me for set pieces. Any other part of my game, they kind of realised it was going to be a bit crap and I'd give a few goals away. But they did sign me, Everton specifically, because I, I, I did create so many goals from from set plays. So seriously, do do people come up to you? Well, they don't come up to me, Steve, because I tend to steer clear of people in, in the current crisis. That's pretty sensible. But yeah, <laughs> most people who speak don't say you're a great player. They, they'd say, I, I remember buying you for whoever it was uh, because of your set pieces. And I'd say, I'd, I'd take that. I'd say, thank you. But at least I was good at something. 
at what, least what I had something to cling on to. What I'm interested in is the fact that there is forever a virtual representation of you because the point that Rory is making is that the, the current players consider their virtual representation of themselves to be some sort of judgment on their value because somebody else is deciding and assigning a, uh, a numerical value to how good they think they are. So to have forever in perpetuity a, a virtual version of you that's something that the other three of us cannot even confess to ever dreaming of let alone understanding but it, what it might it's, mean it's the only thing that keeps me going is thinking of the, the very best version of myself which sadly was a very long time ago because i've descended into old age and and you do remember it's the rose tinted glasses you remember all the, the great goals that you scored great games i played some terrible terrible matches and cost so many teams so many points but you're not clearly not going to remember that so you have to remember the best version of yourself and that's what I, I i do remember as a player well at least i was that good for half a season maybe at most but it's what i cling to it keeps me going the, it, the serious point about all this information being readily available now and even more in depth as the years go by it doesn't half make mine and chinch's job a lot harder doesn't it chinch because people already know about the players that we're commentating on. Yes. So yes. we have to work even harder. We have, have to do some work. I know. We? Yes. We actually have to do some research so that we've got those little snippets up our sleeves. Because people do, I think, watch matches and they will hear commentators and, and maybe more so co-commentators talking about players and being critical about that because... Do you know what? They don't see that or that description of that player reflected in the virtual version of that player. So they believe that you don't know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Because do you know what? On FIFA, that player is more skillful than the way that you've just described him or is better in the air than you've just analyzed. And he's certainly quicker on FIFA than he is in terms of the way... But it's whether it's, the player. question is whether FIFA is actually a fair reflection of, of that player rather than watching him play in the flesh, which is what we tend to do and judge them by that rather than playing FIFA again. But that's where you're getting your information from. And that's whether it was when it first started or, or kids playing the game today or anybody playing the game today. You're soaking up all that information. Is that, is, is kind of championship manager FIFA, is that the main area that, that, that football fans get their football information from? Because there's obviously a world of information out there, that you, you know, podcasts and, and websites, but is, is it all, it kind of soaks into you just, just playing FIFA, you, you pick it up without even knowing? I think, I think there's probably two, there's two ways it goes. One is that I think there's lots of ways that people now, and this is only really relevant for the last five or six years, I guess, that if they really want to look into a player, you can do, even as a, just a fan, you can do relatively detailed research on a player you know if your club's been linked with such and such a striker from from holland it's not just a case of oh i can see how many goals he scored and he's got this rating on fifa you can go and do you can obviously go through the youtube highlights often you can watch high, actual highlights of matches you can you can do relatively decent there's, there's quite a lot of kind of publicly available stats services that that are of are of limited use to people inside the game so things like stalker who scored have a tremendous value to fans or are given tremendous worth by fans who want to believe what they say and want to feel that they are legitimate, and that's fair enough. And it's not that they're not of any value whatsoever, but I think within the game they're seen as being a little bit basic and slightly subjective. And see, I mean, I never really use who scored, but there's, it, it gives players like a ranking, but no one is entirely clear what the what the ranking is. So if you, if, you know, if I, I've learned not to do it really, but if I say, oh, such and such a player who's been linked with Everton or whatever, 
not sure not sure about them and that'll be based on having seen them a few times on tv and having seen them in the flesh maybe once or twice i wouldn't do it for a play that i've never watched um you'd you then get this sort of flurry of well actually he's got this rating on who scored or squawker have done this or according to these statistics that i've that i've got he does this this and this really really well you're wrong ah you're rubbish you shouldn't shouldn't have a job which is the way that all these conversations go um but I think within the game, it's recognised that all of those publicly available sources are basically are basically quite flawed. They're not unuseful, but they're not they're certainly not kind of comprehensive or or universally acknowledged as being valuable. Um, but I think the the broader effect that like FIFA and, and Football Manager have is is they kind of populate your worldview a little bit. So pretty much everybody who's who's of a certain age, probably below forty, and maybe even forty five and is is sort of sufficiently into football to shout at people on Twitter about it, will have some sort of computer game in, in their background. They will have played FIFA. They will have played Football Manager. Um, and it, it gives you an impression that I think even subconsciously is quite hard to shake of players. And it definitely feeds into that conversation in ways that aren't always acknowledged when you're having the conversation. That's true. That's probably true for me as well, although it's, it's a long time since I've played any of these games. So for younger players coming through, I don't, you know, my, my impression of Jaden Sancho is not based on what he's like on FIFA because I haven't been able to play FIFA during Jaden Sancho's career. Um, but I think it does, it has bled into that conversation quite a lot without, without maybe being, being acknowledged. And partly that's just the idea that you can rate players. So if we didn't have computer games, the idea of, of clubs assigning value to a player, you know, out of 50 for crossing or whatever, would be completely alien to a lot of fans. But because we, we're used to that idea, it, to most of us, again, under the age of 40, 45, it seems like a perfectly logical thing to do. We, we innately understand that language in a way that people who are older just wouldn't. It would, I mean, Chinch's response is kind of, is self-deprecating as it always is with Chinch. But to an extent, the meaninglessness of those numbers is because you haven't, Learn, effectively learn that language whereas we we have all we the rest of us have all learned that language we know we instinctively know what it means you i when when you said oh 69 out of 100 is good i know instinctively someone who's not played any of these games for a long long time certainly since owning a dog um that 69 isn't very good whereas it logically it should be in the same way as six out of 10 should be quite a positive you know performance in a game but it's not six out of 10 is is average to pretty much everybody that is you didn't do anything particularly wrong 69 on if you said to a player you're 69 out of 100 i would be thinking the player would probably be, object to that a little bit because they'd be well now nah, maybe be in the 70s at least and it's it's a language that we've learned for 20 30 years that makes sense to us and that comes from computer games. it's a useful resource like many other things providing you don't take it too seriously a bit like, as Rory just alluded to, this idea that if your club is linked with a play you've not seen him play, well, don't just look at the YouTube highlights reel. You need to dig a little bit deeper than that. You can't say that'll be a great signing because I've seen two and a half minutes of clips of his best moments on YouTube and that must be what he's like all of the time. In the same way, well, you know, don't say I've played with him on FIFA and he's brilliant because he scored a banger. But it, it, will, it can help you in terms of how you might compare that player to one that you are more familiar with in the real world. So if it is that mysterious Dutch striker that you've been linked with from Heronvain, well, you can have a look at him on FIFA and compare him to strikers that currently play in the Premier League and how his ratings and his attributes compare. There are ways in which you can use it as a resource. And I've definitely used it as, as prep for games. Not often, because obviously my knowledge is vast and encyclopedic and 
of, of all the many leagues that I'm uh, that I have to work across. But there have been times when I've been having to commentate on a team that I'm I'm not that familiar with. And if the if the boys are playing FIFA, I think well, why don't we play a game involving them? Because I might learn a little bit more about the players than I will do just from staring at a computer screen and, and reading information about them online. But also, do you know what? Especially now, Derek Ray is involved in the the commentary on FIFA because he's an absolute stickler for pronunciation. So you, from the one of the very, very basic things that Chinch and I have to do as part of our jobs is to get a player's name right. And if you can hear somebody saying it over and over again who has previously had to do their research in order to, to get that as accurately as they possibly can, then it's a useful armory, you know, useful tool to take into your commentary of that team if, if you haven't got the level of access to watching their previous games as you might have liked. And how, how accurate do you believe the evaluation of players is? Would you say you're looking at 80, 90% of the numbers that you get with a player? Would you say, yeah, that's, that's not far off the player that I see? They must well, work think, very hard to try and get these numbers. Yeah, they do. As close I think, as they possibly can. I think they're broadly, they're, they tend to be kind of in the ballpark where they, they always get, Miles Jacobson, who's the, um, one of the inventors of football manager I've spoken to about this before. One of the things that he, he always says is that they kind of get criticized if they miss a, a 17 year. So they say there's some Argentinian 17 year old who they have, have underrated or overrated, um, who doesn't make it. They're always criticized. For that. So like Javier Saviola was always amazing on, on football, on championship manager, or football manager, whichever, whichever it was at the time, but never really did it in, um, in real life to the extent that he was meant to. Although it's funny if Javier Saviola has won a lot of trophies. Um, and it, that, that's always kind of that and Cherno Samba, who was the Millwall wonder kid, who was meant to be the superstar. They're always the ones held against football manager. But Miles's view is, is they get a lot more right than they get wrong. So there'll, there'll be players who were really good on football manager five years before they kind of kicked in to becoming actual fo- football stars in real life. Where do um, they get their information? Where, where well, does so all they, this information get garnered? It's all a bit different now, I think. Football Manager certainly works with it. They've got like a network of scouts in each country. Oh, okay. And that's one of the problems that those scouts will favour local players compared to others. So they'll, they'll score naturally quite highly. Um, and they're not, you know, a lot of them aren't professional scouts. They're not actual. They do have some who are actual club scouts in Brazil or whatever who will, who will provide them with information. But a lot of it is kind of enthusiasts and people who love the game and and just kind of contacts in certain in certain countries and ultimately all of these all of these evaluations are subjective there is no you know there is no way of of saying whether a player using the football manager scale should get 19 for pace or 20 for pace but i think in the ballpark or in my eight, case eight eight later on who, in your career who is, the, who is the scout that that phoned 16 that when you're young 16 when you're young but yeah, the, yeah, I think as a what did what did Paul Jewell do as a little bit of a side earner? He was pretty zero down zero. <laughs> but I think I think in they they they're generally in the ballpark. They're not they're not bad. Um, but as Steve says, I think to, you can't base them for lots of reasons. You can't base your opinion on players on what they're like on FIFA, whatever your status within football. Um, partly because they are just ballpark figures, you don't you can't interrogate them sufficiently to be sure. Uh, partly because these games are not, they can't see into the, they're not clairvoyant, these, these, the people designing them. They don't know that a player might get hit by an injury and become a lot worse. Um, the, the, a player might have a sudden growth spurt at, 20, at 18, 19, maybe not 20, but 18, 19, and become a completely different type of footballer who's a lot better. They can't, they can't see that coming. Um, 
and the other thing is that all of it is subjective so you're what you see on the pitch is only your interpretation of what you see on the pitch and this is what a lot of people including journalists forget is not necessarily correct it's just what you think simon parkin wrote a really good long read in the guardian a couple of years ago about fifa and its history that fifa as in the game and its history and i think off the top of my head it talks about how there was about nine thousand people involved in the data collection on players in terms of getting that side of the information right. It was substantially more people involved in the data side of it than there were in the development of the game. That is how much stock they put in, in terms of scouting to get it as accurate as possible. Again, and this brings us on to kind of how these games have affected football. It, I don't think it's massively dissimilar. And they won't use this, they obviously won't use like the football manager criteria. There'll be different ones. And each club's difference are some give like letter gradings to players. So you'll have A, B, C and D in terms of whether they want to definitely sign them, probably sign them, maybe sign them, not want to sign them. Um, but a, a lot, I think, do have like a new, some sort of numerical system because that's the only, the, the only way you've got, have got of comparing people to other targets and to the players you've already got. It has had a huge influence, but in so many ways. You know, we, we talked a little bit earlier on about the sort of parallels that can be drawn between the virtual football and real life football. I mean, when, when FIFA was first released... They picked up the license to use the name FIFA for absolutely nothing. It just had international teams. It had no sort of correlation with the club game as, as we understand it now. And, and the value, football's understanding of its value has been driven by interest in, in FIFA, by the commercial success of FIFA. A bit like, you know, we, we look at the Premier League and the way that TV rights have exploded and, and how the investment from television has, has driven the game forwards to its detriment, as, as many people see it. But, but a computer game company based in the States that was used to working with sporting organizations there where they had licenses and, and commercial deals in place that became involved in those games was suddenly being replicated in soccer. And our, the governing bodies of, of association football had to get their act together. They had to suddenly understand what they were worth in the marketplace, you know, FIFA, FIFA suddenly discovered what its name was worth because of the success of the computer game that bore that name. And when EA started inquiring about, well, cl- using club rights, player image rights, stadium rights, suddenly Premier League clubs and, and leagues all over the world had to, had to get their, their commercial act together. So it has played as significant a role as TV rights have in terms of driving the game forward and the explosion of money. I think that's a really good point. And I, you know, I've not actually thought of that before, that, that, that I think FIFA probably, probably did teach football a lot about the, va- the value kind of, of its own intellectual property. But the other thing that we should, we should mention is the impact it's had on the way the game is played. And the best example of that, although not, I think, the only example of that, is, um, is kind of the rise of Tekka's culture, which obviously started off on Soccer AM, but... In, certainly in Britain, but that but feeds into kind of gift culture and the way that we, we consume football now in terms of, you know, looking for, for crazy bits of skill and the showmanship street that people like Neymar have. And even to an extent, people, someone like Mbappe is directly related, I think, to FIFA. That it's that kind of sense of, here's this amazing trick that I can do on a pitch that looks like it belongs on FIFA, which, which wasn't a thing nearly so much 
in the in the 90s before computer game culture kind of seeps into football so when chinch was playing obviously players would do tricks not him he didn't have one but the they would do tricks at him and he would be bamboozled <laughs> by them um, chinch's trick was accuracy yes my trick go- was my trick was not having a trick <laughs> He's gonna, he's, he's gonna do me here. No, he isn't. He's gonna he's step gonna, over and not make me. Oh no, he's not. He's oh, gonna knock I'm surprised. Past me and run through me like a rhino. That's, that that could have been your nickname, Chinch, the rhino. No, it was David Unsworth. Dave Unsworth already t- had the rhino. Oh my god! But you've got the yeah. physique and the nose. <laughs> Just carry on with your story, <laughs> will you? No, but I think that if you looked at someone like Neymar, say, what you get from Neymar that you didn't didn't get nearly as frequently before, are tricks that essentially have no purpose. So there'll be, there's lots of players now who will do things. It's not, and this isn't said pejoratively, who will do things on the pitch that are designed partly to humiliate the opponent, partly to sort of showcase your technical super supremacy, but partly just because that's how football is played on computer games, that you will, if you can do a trick by pressing these buttons, you'll do it. And that's how you kind of get one-upmanship on your mate, on that, or whether you're playing online or in real life. Um, and that, I think, has seeped into the way the game is played to, to a large extent from particularly from FIFA that you now there is now a kind of a currency placed on being able to do a trick even if that trick does not really have a purpose well it's easier to score a banger on FIFA than it is in real life so why bother to go out onto a park football pitch and learn how to stick the ball in the top corner if you can get the satisfaction from from doing it on a computer game and something else that we've talked about a lot about things like tribalism and and the craziness on social media about the way that people follow their team from a distance that's driven by computer games as well by that you know Hugh mentioned earlier the the Messi Ronaldo how their stats compare on on FIFA people get really exercised about changes in gameplay or what they perceive to be inaccuracies or perhaps that some player has you know has got greater ability on the computer game than they have in real life or or vice versa and they get really really angry about it so nathan redmond the southampton player complaining that uh, alan saint maxime is not as fast on fifa ultimate team as he is in real life and he was closed down by a defender when he was playing with him over the weekend and he was really enraged about it and there was a whole tirade of people on his feed I was saying oh yeah that's FIFA 2020 for you it's all you should go back and play FIFA 2019 it's much more accurate people get really cross about changes of the game from one year to the next and I think the developers get like death threats online so it does it mirrors real life football in so many ways it's extraordinary it's like it's difficult to know you know it's like a chicken and egg which came first now you'll remember last week it was suggested that lockdown is a perfect time for Jack Reacher to provide us with some comforting words through the vassal that is Andy Hinchcliffe. Well, we are never ones to disappoint or indeed come up with a new idea. So instead of a soccer story this week, Chinch will once again take you to the comfy wing-backed armchair, not in his drawing room, but in his much more echoey utility room, and read us some out-of-context Reacher. This, if you are a new listener, is when Chinch reads a randomly selected passage from a Jack Reacher novel by Lee Child, soon to be Lee Child with Andrew Child, the Sentinel, out October. But for now, the excerpt and more is provided by James Black, who says this. Hello, Steve, Rory. Hugh and Andy. I went to my bookshelves to look for the one Reacher novel I own, Personal. Next to it on the bookshelf, I found The Outsider by Albert Camus, which I also opened at a random page. I attached this too because, well, I would like to hear Andy read Camus alongside Lee Child. I do sincerely love the pod. It brought footballing joy to the time after I was made redundant a year or so ago, and I thank you all for that. That's from James Black. So James has doubled Chinch's workload. We have our first opportunity to see just how well Reacher matches up with other works 
of literary genius. Over to you, Chinch, for another edition of Out of Context Reacher. L'Etranger, The Outsider, The Stranger, was the book given to me by Pat Nevin when I first joined Everton. And clearly he was trying to tell me, because Camus was a, a goalkeeper. So either Pat was saying, left back isn't the position for you, you should be a goalkeeper. I don't think he was. He was saying, you're not the normal, typical type of footballer which is what this book is all about, existentialism, which I was, I was into at the time and everybody in the Everton dressing room was as well. We'll talk about that again in a minute. But this is what he was trying to say, is just be true to yourself. I think this is what he was trying to say. I've never really spoken to him about it. Be true to yourself. You don't have to be the typical footballer, so just, just do what's right for you. So it was a, the first book I'd ever been given by somebody else, which is unusual, isn't it? Normally you buy books for yourself. So anyway, there we go. But yeah, in the, in the Everton dressing room, existentialism, morality, nihilism. It was, uh, it, they were the themes, they were the kind of philosophies that all Everton players were, were talking about during the 90s. I remember Ray Atavelt and myself would discuss the meaning of life, how the Dutch saw it, how the English saw it. We'd go at it day after day after day. I'd be having my lunch in the cafeteria, Kevin Ratcliffe would stroll in and I'd think, oh, how long before the Welsh captain mentions Plato? It was just <laughs> one of those kind of, one of those times one of those times, you know, Socrates. Plato food. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Plato exactly. lobsters in the bath. Yeah, Socrates wandering around the, the marketplace, finding people to talk to about the meaning of life and philosophy. That's what it was like under Howard Kendall at Everton in the 90s. Uh, but this book, it is, it's, it's a belting book. It really is. Um, so I think I'll do Camus first. We'll do the serious stuff first. And then we can move on to the, uh, it's still serious stuff. The, the, the Reacher novel later on. So can I just clarify what's happening here? The, the I in this passage that I'm going to read from uh, L'Etranger is uh, Arthur Merceau. I think that's how we're going to pronounce it. He is the protagonist in all this. So I will, I will do my best. It's hard not to slip into my, my Reacher reading when reading something as serious as this, but I'll give it a go. As far as I was concerned, the whole thing was over and I'd gone here without even thinking about it. As soon as he saw me, he sat up a little and put his hand in his pocket. Naturally, I gripped Raymond's gun inside my jacket. Then he lay back again, but without taking his hand out of his pocket. I was pretty far away from him, about 10 meters or so. I could tell he was glancing at me now and then through half-closed eyes. But most of the time, he was just a form shimmering before my eyes in the fiery air. The sound of the waves was even lazier, more drawn out than at noon. It was the same sun, the same light still shining on the same sand as before. For two hours, the day had stood still. For two hours, it had been anchored in a sea of molten lead. On the horizon, a tiny steamer went by, and I made out the black dot from the corner of my eye because I hadn't stopped watching the Arab. It occurred to me that all I had to do was turn around, and that would be the end of it. But the whole beach, throbbing in the sun, was pressing on my back. I took a few steps towards the spring. The Arab didn't move. That is L'Etranger, Albert Camus, read by A. Hinchcliffe. Now, this is, it's tricky to go from that to this. Um, but can if I just anyone, say... If anyone can do it, Chinch, you can. Uh, uh, Hugh, have you just, again, you just randomly opened the book and got these two pages. Is this how this has worked? James Black has. I James haven't. has done this, has he? Because it's uncanny, because he's opened the book at, at exactly where you need to read Reacher from. He's just killed. He's looking to kill again. And he's with a lady. <laughs> so again, it's it's absolutely it's typical Reacher. It really Reacher is jackpot. Absolutely, and the, it's the last sentence that you've got to you've got to listen out for. It's not maybe Lee Child's not hitting the heights of Albert Camus. I'm a bit disappointed in that. But anyway, the the last sentence is worth waiting for because it really speaks volumes 
uh, to a lot of people out there in positions of power. Here we go. We waited, like I had many times before. Waiting was a big part of law enforcement and a big part of army life generally. Long, slow periods of nothing much with occasional bursts of something. I was good at it, and Casey Nice turned out to be good at it too. That's the woman, Casey Nice. She stayed awake, which was the main thing. She rested easy, not staring intently, but keeping her gaze where she would notice movement. At one point, she used the bathroom, and I wondered about pills, but I didn't say anything. Then she asked me the inevitable question. She said, do you feel bad about the guy? I said, what guy? The guy who died. You mean the guy I killed in cold blood? I suppose. Some tough guy he was. Do you feel bad? No, I said. Really? Do you? A little. You didn't do anything to him. Even so, he had a choice, I said. He could have spent his days helping old ladies across the street. He could have volunteered in the library. I expect they have a library here. He could have raised funds for Africa or wherever they're raising funds for these days. He could have done a whole lot of good things, but he didn't. He chose not to. He chose to spend his days extorting money and hurting people. Then finally, he opened the wrong door, and what came out at him was his problem, not mine. Plus, he was useless. A waste of good food, too stupid to live. Stupidity isn't a capital crime, and there's no death penalty here anyway. There is now. She didn't reply to that, and we lapsed back into silence. The afternoon light faded, and a yellow vapor light came on in the parking lot below us. It was up on a tall pole, and it caught most of the black panel van. Other cars came and parked and went away again. Every one of their drivers glanced at the van and then looked away. At first, I thought it was because they must know whose van it was and therefore were unsettled. Then I realized there must be another reason. I said, the other guy must be banging and hollering, which was a mistake on my part. I should have told him not to or made sure he couldn't. I was going to screw up my timeline. I wasn't going to drop a day of worry on them. Couple hours at the most, although initially there seemed to be a marked lack of enthusiasm among the population of Romford for playing the Good Samaritan. No one did a damn thing for the guy. They all just glanced away and got out of the lot as fast as they could. Proof once again, I supposed, that tyrants inspire no love or loyalty. What a final line that is from Lee Child. He's, he's taken a while to get there, but that is a Bobby Dazzler. That, that was a Reacher manifesto included uh, within that section. To James, thank you very much indeed uh, for sending those in. All you need to do, open a page from Reacher, send it in, tell us uh, if you would like Chinch to read it for you. Keep your correspondence coming in to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Please subscribe, share, rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Stephen, Andy and Rory and to you all for listening. We'll be back with another Set Piece Menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed. Can I, can I just say, I had a text during, obviously, the recording of this podcast about another podcast that we've done previously <laughs> saying, I can confirm Tulum Beach in Mexico is nudist. <laughs> I have first-hand experience. And, and that's from an no anonymous pictures. texter? No, I know who it is, but I, I don't think I should mention his name. Is it a former Sheffield Wednesday teammate? Is it Peter Atherton? No, it's not Peter. Kevin And it's Preston. not a Sheffield Wednesday teammate. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. It's, well, it's someone it's... we all know but they've clearly been to that beach and got their goods out. Oh, Weaver then. Why would you think of him? That's an appalling assumption to make. This is Sky Sports commentator Gary Weaver. Just so and it isn't, can clear. I just say, it isn't it Gary is not, Weaver. Let's, yeah. not, let's not carry on with this, but I'm just going to say, I had an, an update on a previous podcast during this podcast, which I don't normally get. No one, no one texts me anyway.